All right, we're here with Dr. Travis Langley. He's going to be here for LubbockCon, February 29th and March 1st. Uh, Travis, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well. Awesome. Well, first off, I want to say thank you so much, not only for joining us here at the show, but joining us later in the month at the LubbockCon show. Have you ever been to uh, Texas before? I've been to Texas many, many times. Uh, my kids live in Texas. I lived in Texas for a little bit when I was a kid. Uh, in the Dallas area, and we've crossed Texas on some cross-country trips between Dallas and San Diego Comic-Con, mm. and it's one of those, you go, you're asleep, not the one driving while you're sleeping, and you wake <laughs> up, you're still in Texas, it keeps going, you're still in Texas. My wife's from Houston, and Ooh. she would quote this old saying, uh, you know, the sun done rose, and the sun done set, and you ain't got out of Texas yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've also heard, when it comes to road trips, if you can make it through Texas, you're over halfway home. <laughs> no matter where you're going. Uh, it's it's funny because, you know, a lot of people who haven't been here, they think, oh, yeah, your Dallas is down the street from Houston, <laughs> and then Lubbock's around the corner. And it's like, no, it's five hours to get anywhere, but it's funny. No, I, I, live in, I live in Arkansas. So I'm in a neighbor. I teach at a university in southern Arkansas, Henderson State University. And... There'll be people who'll say, hey, you should come see us, you know, when we're in San Antonio. And I'm thinking, I think that's about 11 hours from where I am. You know, that's not just popping over. Yeah, and things are, are a little different down south part of the country, but it's it's still good. So you, you mentioned that you teach there at Henderson. Uh, tell the folks at home what it is that you teach there. I, my, my actual rank is Distinguished Professor of Psychology. Uh, I teach psychology. The main things I teach are social psychology, forensic psychology, uh, classes on mental illness. Every spring I do some media-related class, uh, psychology in film, psychology in literature. Uh, this semester it's Batman for the third time. Yeah, I don't have to disguise what I'm doing here. I don't have to call it like psychology of nocturnal vigilantism. I call it Batman. Only students who want the word Batman in their transcripts are in that class. That sounds awesome. And that's really cool. You know, that's what you're bringing to the con we're excited about. If somebody goes on Amazon, types in your name, there's dozens of books about superhero psychology and not just the heroes themselves, but like their battles. You know, I, I, you did one about Civil War, the Marvel Civil War. Uh, not yeah, what, I'm, what, what I'm best known for is uh, being the author of the book Batman and Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night. And it has been doing very well every single week for the entire time since it first came out a couple of years ago. And after it did, the, the book initially did really well. Other psychologists with some nerdy interest would say, you know, if you do more of these books, we'd like to get involved. So most of the others since then have been anthologies, collections of different people writing different chapters depending on what we're talking about so obviously the walking dead psychology and game of thrones psychology would have multiple trauma chapters <laughs> and each different area we can read different things we can talk about any area of psychology because when you're talking about psychology you're talking about human nature maybe animal nature but we're always talking about human nature and we're using fictional examples to talk about the psychology of real people so when I give a talk on the psychology of Star Wars uh, Sunday during LubbockCon, I'll be using these characters to talk about real aspects of human nature. And some people look at me and say, well, those characters 
don't have a lot of depth. They're kind of two-dimensional. I say, that's one of the tricks of Star Wars. Even though you have characters who are left and right talking about light side, dark side, and they're talking like it's that two-dimensional, the stories repeatedly show that people are more complicated than that. The rogue who says he'll never stick his neck out for anybody does. The uh, young hero who thinks he's going to stay on the farm, goes out and adventures. The princess, they've got to save. She takes over the rescue because those guys don't know what they're doing. The deadliest killers are the teddy bears. The big hairy trumpet supposedly rips out arms is the most nurturing character of all and Luke wins the day in the original trilogy because he has faith, he sees past that dark exterior to believe Darth Vader has greater depth so that repeatedly shows people are more complicated than that and there, there is more hope there is anything about human nature that we can talk about through these characters so I'm glad you you put it that way because I'm curious in your process, kind of a chicken and egg, do you look at a a property, you know, like Star Wars or Batman or I'm really excited to check out your Daredevil book, but we'll get to that in a minute. And do you look at those characters and say, okay, here's what I think is going on or do you think of a a condition or an aspect of psychology and then think, okay, what characters does that apply to? What what order does that go in there? Well, when you're teaching, you're often thinking of examples on the fly, you know, just off the top of your head. And there have been times when you know, I'm talking about a specific condition or a specific aspect of human nature, of growing up, or Jungian archetypes. When you're talking about Jungian archetypes and you're talking about the hero archetype and the shadow archetype and the trickster archetype. And I remember, even before I was writing these books, I'm up there and it pops in my head, well, Batman and the Joker are very good examples of some of these. The hero who embraces his shadow side and becomes this darker hero than others. And so this grim brooding hero who dresses like a monster, his ultimate enemy is Trickster in his case, a Trickster shadow, is the bright laughing monster who looks like a clown. And a few years ago, I gave a talk at the Southwestern Psychological Association. One of my former students came up and had to do with the nature of the talk I was using. She said, I was surprised you didn't use that Batman Joker example for, uh, you know, the, the shadow and the trickster, because those really helped her understand. So, so sometimes it is you start with the psychological concept and what fits this. It, it tends to be the other way around, though, with uh, most of these topics. You know, I'm approaching this as a fan of Batman. And some of the psychological concepts just leap out at you. You've got to talk about trauma issues, obviously, but you can talk about any aspect of psychology. And some of it going through is like, what area of psychology will fit this character's life? And with each of these, it's what do we, what's interesting to me, and when there's an anthology, to the other psychologists and therapists who are writing chapters on these, what characters are interesting to us? And then what can we talk about with them? So it, it tends to be character first, which I think is part of what helps this uh, become as popular as these books have been, because people can see that, that the most of us are, are approaching these as fans who, who do know the material well, and we know our psychology too. I know, it's, that's really neat. So you mentioned that you're a fan, you're a Batman fan. Mm-hmm. Was Has it been a lifelong uh, fandom with superheroes or kind of what is your origin story I guess when it comes to liking superheroes and things if 
we were on video, I could show you a photo of me at age nine months holding one of my mom's comic books looking really delighted by it. <laughs> nice. My baby book shows that one of my earliest words was Batman. Asking when I discovered them is like asking when I discovered the sun. I don't remember. They've <laughs> always appealed to me. They've always been fascinating to me. I'm interested in, in heroism itself. What brings out the best in people in the worst of situations? And and that's always been intriguing to me. That that's cool. Yeah, that's people who have that fostering at a young age, you know, and the opportunity to discover things like that. It definitely ingrains and you know that that passion, that love. So that's really cool. Now, now of course, I never, I did not grow up thinking I was going to be writing books on the psychology of Batman. <laughs> that that idea. It essentially popped in my head in 2007, and so I was teaching a psychology and literature course and seeing what a powerful tool talking about fictional characters was for helping students understand uh, these psychological concepts. And so I knew that summer, it's like, I need to take some of these things we've been talking about and write an article about Batman. And within a year, I had so many ideas, i got to write a book about Batman. I mean, it's, when, when it's there, it's there, and that's, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Now... Question for, for you, when you look, you talked earlier about looking at tragedy, especially as Batman, do you think that there was just something in the air or things back at the dawn of comics, because it seems like every character had a tragic origin story? Not back at the dawn of comics. Well, not, well I guess we'll say the... No, they, for most of it, a lot of it got added to the stories over the years. Now they all do. Yeah. Where you even have writers retroactively inserting it into the histories of the Flash and Green Lantern when it was not there. You know, until until 2011, uh, the, there's, there's no hair later, but uh, the Flash had his parents. He had, uh, he, had, he had his mom and dad. In fact, he was one of the few superheroes who had both parents. Mm. And now, with the way they tell the stories, oh, we need to have his mom's death be the driving force, and then, you know, we'll deal with his dad later on. Uh, so, the Green Lantern, uh, the Hal Jordan, the original Green Lantern, he, he did not have tragedy in his background, and then in the 21st century, it got out of where, oh, his dad was in a plane that blew up, and he witnessed that. So, they've inserted tragedy in everybody's background. The original... They did not. I mean, yes, it is tragic, Superman's planet blowing up, but he grew up without knowing that. He did not have that tragedy as a driving force in his life when he finally learned about it. It's like learning a history lesson. So most of them did not have these tragedies. Bob Kane and Bill Finger, mostly Bill Finger, when six months into their Batman stories, they decided, okay, we've got to have a reason why this guy's running around dressed like a bat, because they were writing about the superhero who did not have powers. Others, they have powers and decide, oh, we need to put them to good use. This is a guy who did not have those powers. And so why did he do this? It seems easier to understand. It's like a, basic good, a basically good person who suddenly has a lot of power may realize, hey, with great power comes uh, great responsibility. And the, the Fantastic Four said that, too. Not just, uh, it was not just in the Spider-Man story. But with Batman, it's like, why is this guy doing this stuff? And so they brainstormed about it. Well, maybe his wife got killed by gangsters. And in the end, they said, you know, there's probably nothing more traumatic than seeing your parents murdered in front of you. And they tapped into something primal with that. And then eventually, in some in the 60s, more in even recent years, 
writers uh, such as Stan Lee, his co-creators, and others started weaving tragedy into you know, everybody's backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Now, why do we want that tragedy in there? Part is just an interesting story. And getting back to the point of the original question, it's why does somebody do these things? If somebody just decides, I'm going to you know, do the things that the police can't and won't, well, that's pretty darn smug. That's pretty, that sounds really full of themselves. If they've got something tragic in their background, you know, okay, they've got this thing that they've got to deal with, this, this pain that they need to find a useful direction for it. When they have that terrible thing driving them, or they have something wonderful that happens, but they're a very reluctant hero. Like, you know, Frodo Baggins is a very reluctant hero. He doesn't have personal tragedy driving him the same way. In fact, over the course of time, his distance from others seems a little tragic. But he, he is the reluctant hero, the one who gets drawn into it. Generally, your superheroes don't have time to waste to be reluctant heroes. We want them to be leaping in there. And a tragedy is a very good way to let us see them doing the heroic thing without it seeming just outright egotistical. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned people inserting things because, you know, if you go back and you read Superman's first appearance, he was in an orphanage lifting up chairs and stuff, and then then later on you get the mom, Paul Kent, and then sometimes Paul dies, sometimes they both die, sometimes none of them die, and it's just yeah. the joy of comics, I guess. And, yeah, they, they, they recently undied again. Yeah, Doomsday Clock has is, is reset the thing, right. the timeline okay, like five times. <laughs> it's the metaverse, or whatever they're calling it now. It's yeah. Uh, with that, yeah, we are probably confusing so many listeners. But <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I always say, you know, if you if you don't know comics, that's what a local comic Learn. shop's for. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's out there. It's a lot easier you, through local comic shops or even apps like Comixology or Kindle. Like you can you can find what we're talking about real quick and real easy. But when you're looking at your characters with comics having that sliding timeline and things, and do you ever say, oh. okay? How far do you geek out? You know, do you say, okay, well, this only counts for Batman during Neil Adams and Frank Miller run, but it doesn't count during the Grant Morrison Batman, you know, or do you just write it and say, they know, they can figure it out? No, uh, I have I, learned you can't work on the assumption that they know and uh, all this stuff. In two of my books, in Batman and the Psychology, and then the most recent one, The Joker Psychology, one of the earliest chapters addresses that. Chapter two of Batman is, uh, my Batman book is titled Which Batman? Chapter one of the Joker psychology is Which Joker? So going through that history and I'm talking about whatever psychological issues differ over time. So I still have being something psychological throughout those chapters and how specific aspects of the dark tetrad vary different with the Joker over time. There's some points where he, the narcissism, the flamboyance are more prominent features. In 1973, Denny O'Neill made insanity the prominent psychological feature. More recently, more recent years, sadism and Machiavellianism, the manipulativeness. And so I, I talk about how those varied over time while also filling people in on some of the history. With much of it throughout the book, you either have to say, okay, as the character is usually depicted, or be specific about which story you're referring to. Mm-hmm. And also, when it comes to the, the evolutions of characters, do you think that 
when writers were bound by either, you know, Comics Code Authority or Red Scares, you know, things like that, when we went through those phases that they literally could not tell stories they wanted to tell. You know, they had, whether editorial or government mandated, they had their hands tied. Uh, those, do you like to look at those and kind of see, okay, is there more subversion there? Like, they're still the same psychological aspects, but the writers are doing a better job putting it in the shadows, as it were, you know, between yeah, the panels. Actually, I, I had to address that with uh, both of those books, with the Batman book and the Joker book. In Batman, I refer to the fact that how, in the Batman book, I refer to how things such as the comic code mandates softened up the story as it gets brighter and, and lighter and over the course of the 50s and into the very early 60s, the Batman comics were just getting sillier and lacked any psychological depth. And with the Joker book, in fact, I relate major changes in the industry, you know, the Golden Age to Silver Age and so forth, to changes in the Joker. Key points in the Joker's history also match very neatly with the key changes in how comic book stories are being told and how the characters are being depicted. The Joker originally was only murdering people for two years in the early golden age after he first appeared and then editorial mandate was, okay, the Joker has to stop killing people. And that reflected a very general change in the comics. And then as the comics get sillier with less actual psychological depth, the Joker gets sillier and wackier and he gets to outright be the clown prince of crime. And in the 60s, when comics start getting a little more serious, the Joker doesn't appear quite as often as he did when the stories were sillier because the authors weren't quite as sure what to do with the Joker. In fact, he disappeared from comics for four years. He did not appear in Batman comics between 69 and 73 until Danny O'Neill decided, okay, I'm bringing back the outright murderous Joker. Because in 1973, we just can't take that, that silly one uh, anymore. And so, you know, each of these changes in how people are allowed to tell stories very much reflect changes in how the psychological aspects of the stories have any depth at all. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, as you're talking about that, I also think about, like, Lex Luthor, you know, he was the, the he was a nobody, really, and then he was the mad scientist, and then he was the businessman, then he was a politician. So, as time changes and stories develop i think the villains more so than the heroes are kind of that benchmark of what's going around what's going on both in the real world and in the storytelling and that's yeah the the, the joker and lex luther are both amazingly adaptable characters there have been so many versions of luther i mean he first appears as a dictator in some european or eastern bloc country that's the original, you know, they call him Alexei Luther over time, but he's, he originally first appears as a dictator because coming out of World War II, that was what people feared the most. Then you get in the 50s, and, you know, the, the atomic era, and mad scientists are the big concern. And in the 80s, you know, we've got the Reagan era, we've got people worrying about what the corporations are doing to people, and John Byrne turns Lex Luthor right after Crisis on Infinite Earth, the comic version, turns Lex Luthor into this businessman who also is super smart. He's super genius and has the ability. But the first thing is that he's a businessman. 
and then there's a point where he becomes president of the United States. He keeps getting changed depending on what society is worried about. The Joker doesn't have those kinds of changes because, you know, the Joker's not going to get elected president, but he is going to change in his behavior. Extreme differences. How in the world can this mass murderer be popular as toys for little kids? Because that is an amazingly adaptable character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, any medium, you watch... I have a four-year-old, and we go back and we watch some of the old Super Friends shows or Beware the Batman, oh. and the same thing that it's never the same Joker. You know, <laughs> even shows that come out a year apart that it's like, oh, no, this... Now, you know, in The Batman, you have the that weird kind of Rasta Joker and who's just more the prank kind. And then you go to uh, the Deanie-verse, the Bruce Tim-verse, and you have the great joke, you know, what a lot of people consider the anime Joker. But and he's doing everything from the laughing fish to the copyright to throwing people off roofs and yeah it just like, like you said the Joker's just a really fun and fascinating look and yeah selling murder murderers to children is always a good business model I guess works for DC <laughs> well, Batman, the, Batman the animated series had the advantage of pulling the best from the entire history of the comics and bringing in their own original uh, Editions such as Harley Quinn or the tragic origin for Mr. Freeze. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you look, we actually did a whole show where we did episode by episode commentary for the animated series. And you look at the original characters, you know, like Harley Quinn, Renee Montoya, who really did amazing. And then you also. Oh, that's right. She first appeared in the, she first appeared in the cartoon, then mm-hmm. she's in the yeah and she actually appeared in the comics before Harley did by about three years which is is weird but then you also have like Roxy Rocket who made one appearance in comics like six years ago and that was it uh, but yeah I I really think with the animated series you know that's why characters like Mr. Freeze are so popular because they just retooled everything about him same thing with Clayface, you know, kind of took the best of all the different Clayfaces and made it great. And I'm well, by that time they probably had eleven different Clayfaces in comics. Oh yeah, there's they. I think they all like teamed up one time. Like even the Lady Clayface and Carla, all of them. I don't. We're, we're going well, down one the. One time and, they all merge into this mud pack creature. Yeah, I remember that storyline. I. And then now, most recently, you know, James Tynion redeemed him and had him as a hero. Um, mm-hmm. Until he wasn't, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I can sit here and talk animated series all day. It's it's so much fun. It was a lot of fun to revisit it. But so all these books, you know, we've talked about both uh, your books, the collaborative books, and stuff. What can people hope to see when they come to your booth at the end of the month here at Lubbockon? Well, at Lubbockon, I'll have a book signing at Barnes and Noble the Friday evening, right before the convention. And then I'll be at a table next to Barnes & Noble throughout the weekend. I'm giving two talks, one on uh, the psychology of Batman, and that's on at noon on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I'll be talking about Star Wars. Nice. Yeah, and those, 
as you can see, you know, we've just dipped our toes in the water and there's going to be a lot to talk about and those are going to be a whole lot of fun. So I encourage everybody to go to Barnes & Noble that Friday before and then come out on the weekend, check some of these panels out, um, pick up the books, the Batman, the Joker, they're going to be there. It's going to be great and you're going to you're going to love it. Like I said, uh, just in our short conversation, I'm already have a million more questions for panels and all these things going on so when people get the full panel i think they're gonna really enjoy it but dr langley thank you so much again for joining us on the show thank you and we look forward to seeing you at the end of the month